Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. It's safe to say that hip-hop music is a global phenomenon. Case in point, the average NPR listener can hear classic hip-hop instrumentals used as bumper music during All Things Considered. What was once thought to be a passing fad has taken over the airwaves and the internet. And the music has come a long way from the quintessential sounds of groups like the Sugar Hill Gang, Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five, and Run DMC. The sound and vibe of hip-hop has even found its way into country music. Old Town Road, anyone? So... How did the music and culture manifest itself here in Nashville? Today's show is all about hip-hop, the music, and the culture. To get things moving, we're going to start by recognizing a huge moment in hip-hop history that has been years in the making. Earlier this month, the seminal hip-hop group, De La Soul, released their first six albums on streaming platforms for the world to hear. It's an important moment for generations of fans whose only access to this music was either a physical copy or a lucky search on YouTube. However, the celebration has been bittersweet as one of the founding members, Dave Trugoy the Dove Jalakur, passed away on February 12th, just weeks before celebrating this crowning achievement. Now, for many, including yours truly, they are the greatest hip-hop group of all time. And now after years of contractual struggles with their old label, Tommy Boy Records, their music is available to impact a new generation of fans. From our sister station, 99.1 WNXP, for our sister station, 99.1 WNXP, Marquise Munson put together a piece about the significance of this release earlier this month. And he joins me now, Marquise. What's good? Welcome back to This Is Nashville. Man, thank you for having me. I feel like we are pulling back the curtain a little bit because we have these discussions here at the office, and now we get to bring them to the airwaves. So it's, this is lovely. That's right, man. I mean, it's it's a glimpse that we're giving listeners the water fountain conversations that you and I have <laughs> on a daily basis in the hallways here at Nashville Public Radio. So I want to start by asking you, how did you discover De La Soul? What's so crazy about it is I discovered De La Soul a little late in the game. This I was heavily invested in Def Jam, and this is around the time 2000. This is the Def Jam, not the Run DMC and the Beastie Boys. This is DMX, Jay-Z, mm-hmm. Red Man, Method Man. And any artist that was on Def Jam, I was heavily invested in that artist. So if they did a collaboration with someone, I was right there. I bought Def Jam Vendetta, just like I'm pretty sure a lot of other kids who played video games (laughs) bought that game as well. And I was really into Redman, and he collaborated with De La Soul on a song called Ooh. And when I heard that song, it was fun. I I just loved the other two people that were on this record. And I was like, okay, I got to discover who these guys are. Because once I get invested in an artist, I start digging deep into the catalog and start digging deep into, do they have anything else I can potentially listen to? So then I went back to the album before, you know, Stakes is High. Mm -hmm. And then I heard this beat. It was produced by Jay Dilla, which at the time was a huge fan of. He produced a song with Common called The Light. And I'm listening to this record. I'm like, wow, these guys are 
amazing. And then I even went back further, heard a song called Roller Skating Jam named Saturdays, uh-huh. and it featured a guy that I heard on a song called Vibrant Thing. Remember, mind you, this is the year like 1999, 2000, and that man was Q-Tip and just still just going backwards to De La Soul's catalog and listening to these songs. And then I heard Me, Myself, and I. Mm-hmm. And then that was the song that really changed everything for me because of watching the music video. It, it was like everything I was going through as a young black kid going to school, getting bullied for not being black enough or just mm-hmm. being black in general. And then seeing these guys being their true natural selves and playing it so cool was amazing to me as a 10 year old yeah and watching that i'm just like you know these guys are going to be my new favorite artists uh-huh. and sure enough they were yeah you're talking about three uh, uh me myself and i off of their debut album three feet high and rising which was released in 1989 groundbreaking record i mean it broke the mold of hip-hop at the time i mean because they relied so much on samples from james brown and other funk records but you know, De La, they decided they would sample everything from Johnny Cash to Hall & Oates to even schoolhouse rock within that record. And their image was a lot different, too, because that's what hit for me. I was introduced to him in 1989 when my older sister, home from spring break from college, gave me the cassette tape of Three Feet High and Rising. And I felt these guys are like me. I was raised in the suburbs. They were raised in the suburbs. It was a vibe that I felt from them. And. You know, earlier this month, you featured it on WXP and as record of the week. What was unique about that decision? Well, it was, I mean, for one, I thought about this idea for featuring this as record of the week a couple of weeks before True Goy the Dove passed away. Mm-hmm. And so I, it, I felt like it was a perfect opportunity for us to look back because it's one thing that we do on WNXP. We always like to focus on new music that comes out for record of the week, but I felt like this was the perfect opportunity for us to dig deep in a little bit of going back sometimes and diving deep into these records. And obviously with the passing of True Goy, I couldn't talk to De La Soul personally because it was a really tough time for them. And I I reached out and I couldn't get them and that was fine. And I was like, cool, I got a better idea. I'm going to tell the story of Three Feet High and Rising through the lens of people that the album impacted in real time. Mm-hmm. Because the album didn't impact me in real time. I was born a year after Three Feet High and Rising. Hate to make you feel old on a Friday, but wow, I was born a that. year after that. So I wanted to really dive deep into people that this album impacted in real time. People like you who are a yeah. part of this feature. Steve Harouche, who's also gave me some good stuff on Me, Myself, and I. And that's what I wanted to focus on for this, telling the story of De La Soul without talking to De La Soul because their music is so impactful to listeners. So why not just talk to the listeners? Mm. And so that's what direction I took. And I had an opportunity to talk to author Dan Charnas. He's the author of a Jay Dilla book that is currently out called Dilla Time, Incredible Read. And I had a chance to talk to him and he gave me good stuff on just the importance of their album and sampling and Prince Paul and all these different elements that made Three Feet High and Rising great. Well, let's take a listen to one of the songs from Three Feet High and Rising. It's called Jennifer Taught Me, Derwin's Revenge. Access. 
to her code, love struck, was my mode, took a look, dropped my textbook, Jennifer, oh, breakfast, broke it fast, she was in my English class, asked for notes, rocked my boat, Jennifer, oh, Jenny, lost her favorite penny, so I gave her a dollar, she kissed me, and I hollered. In a flash, the school bell rang. Jenny grabbed onto my hand, took me home, and said, You gorgeous. Swing it, swing it, swing. All right, so this song. Full disclosure, this is my <laughs> ringtone on my phone. <laughs> this song is about teenage infatuation. Marquise, what do you like about this track? First of all, it is just so fun to sing along mm-hmm. as we were doing it in the studio. <laughs> yes. So glad there's not cameras in here for that reason. <laughs> but also, I love the samples on this song. Like, And I think that's what made their music so unique because it's like music discovery before we ever launched WNXP. Mm. 1989, we're listening to the samples. That drum beat is from Lynn Collins' Think, the same sample that Rob Bass and DJ Easy Rock use on It, it Takes Two. two. Yeah. And also they're sampling artists like Steve Miller Band, Take the Money and Run, and they're sampling on I Know, Stilly Dan. They're sampling the Turtles. Like mm-hmm. You're listening to not only De La Soul's music and their rhymes and all this fun lyrics that they're rapping about, but you're also hearing elements of every musical genre you can think of. That's right. And that's what made their music so special. Major props to the producer, Prince Paul, who worked with them on their first three albums. Now, their second album was released in 1991. It was titled De La Soul is Dead, and they chose that title because of some confusion about the image after their first release. Can you, Marquise, tell us briefly a little bit more about that? Yeah, so two years removed from this record, they said, you know what? We're just going to change everything. Mm -hmm. You know, this whole hippie hip hop that they're trying to pigeonhole us into, that's dead. And the death of the Daisy Age, which is the inner sounds, y'all, if like Khalil likes to say. And they started dissing themselves from the label that everyone was trying to give them. And this album went to a little bit more of a darker side. I like to compare this album to how the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air has a darker version of it now called Bel-Air that Uh is currently out. I feel like this album is that for Three Feet High and Rising. It is the darker version of this record. And sure, there's fun records on this album like a roller skating jam named Saturdays, but you can tell from even listening to the skits where these bullies are dissing every song on the album. Mm -hmm. It is one of those things where they're just like, you know what, this hippie rap that you try to put us in, this is not us. Here it is. Mm-hmm. And it, it definitely, they held on to the comedy and some of the irreverent, whimsical nature of the first album, but it was a little bit darker. They got a little bit older, and they saw some of the negative sides of the music industry. So let's listen to a track. It's called Oodles of O's, and where they sample Tom Waits' Diamonds on My Windshield. Let's check it out. Oodles and oodles of O's, you know. You get them from my sister, you get them from my bro. All I is is man and once an embryo. Am I solid gold? I don't cast the glow. Yes, I guess it's reflex. Some have a control. I'd rather let a laughter and tally up my go. Canoeing up the river or out into the hole. You just know me not, so not play the role. Some are lovey-dovey, I hear crazy throw. Some shake your hand, but this is called show. I was John Doe, Mr. Jolico, pissed with the witness of the I.O. O's got the world, cause O's was on tour. Girls gave the O's and guys O's for sure. Where they arose from, nobody knows. 
but do they mean? Well, here's how it goes. Those shits got the O's when you hold the dough. You know who you are, but they didn't know. And now with respect, they flex like a pro. You're first another forget but now an afro. Oodles and oodles and O's. Oodles and oodles and oodles of O's. You know, they're giving oodles and O's and O's. That is oodles of O's from De La Soul. And I love that because they're like, you know, walking around as strangers, but suddenly everybody knows them. Oh, you're those dudes, you know? And, and the fact that the rhyme scheme, both of them in their rhymes with the vowel sound O throughout the entire song, brilliant. Two of the best MCs ever. I can go on forever, but we have to move on with this. So we're moving on to their third album, which is my personal favorite, 1993's Balloon Mind State. The album, it didn't have the commercial success, but it was, as like their previous two projects, but it was critically acclaimed you know, how did you react when you first heard that record? What's so crazy about it is as I'm talking about going through De La Soul's catalog backwards, that's the one album I skipped because everybody was like, ah, that album's okay. Uh. So I was like, I don't want to listen to that then. And then when their music finally got on streaming services, I'm like, you know what? I'm going to give this album a listen as well. And then I heard Break of Dawn and I was like, Wow, this al- this song in general has been missing in the 30 plus years I've been on earth. And how have I not heard this song yet? Ego tripping when oh. they're just yelling at the beginning of this song. And I'm like, how have I been missing this album? I think from a production standpoint, when you hear this album, this is boom bap at its finest. The, mm-hmm. the work from Prince Paul and De La Soul on this album It's truly amazing. And it had me going back to albums that people may have criticized in the past. And I'm going to listen to it with a second ear and be like, you know what? As I get older, like, this is really good. And so I'm apologizing to De La Soul for ever (laughs) just skipping and glossing over Balloon Mind State because it is an incredible album. Well, let's take a listen to Break of Dawn. Okay, so here's a quick story. It's the summer of 1993. I'm listening. They sampled Michael Jackson's, um, it's called uh, I Can't Help It Off of the Awful Off the Wall album. I'm listening to the Michael Jackson tape. And a friend of mine in college, he and I were like, we should start making hip hop, man. I'm like, yeah, yeah, that'd be great. So I'm listening to it, and I'm like, dude, somebody should sample this. I come back. It's fall semester. I'm like, Pat, we need to sample this and figure it out. We couldn't get a hold of the gear. So later on that night, we're listening to the hip-hop show in North Carolina, and they're like, here's the new De La Soul song, and here is Break of Dawn. That let me know two things. One, they are definitely my favorite group, and two, 
I might be pretty good at this hip hop thing. You, yeah, I mean, you are. That is a smooth so. sample, and also too, at, like towards kind of the back end of that song, there is a part of the song that is sampled in a Will Smith song, getting jiggy with it when they do the na 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 part. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yes, and so when you listen to that song further, you'll hear a little bit of getting jiggy with it, which will come out like three years, four years later. Okay, so let's talk about their the album that really introduced you to the group, their 1996 album. Stakes is high, which was a little bit of a departure from the previous work because this was the first album that they didn't work with producer Prince Paul. They produced most of the tracks to themselves. I think they had Super Dave West, Jay Dillon, a few other producers on with them. Let's take a listen to that title track, Stakes is High. Then I want to hear about what that song means to you. Focal point bringing damage to your bar will be some brothers from the east with the beats that be thorough. Got the solar gravitation, so I'm bound to pull it. I gets down like brothers are found, ducking from bullets. Gun control means using both hands in my land, where it's all about the cautious living. Migrate into a higher form of consequence. Compliments are struggling, that shouldn't be notable. Man, every word I say should be a hip hop quote. I'm sick of shaking, sick of talking about blood, sick of Versace glasses, sick of slang, sick of happy. So that message, that still resonates today, huh? Yes, everything he's he says in that first verse, even in the beginning of the second, everything still holds true in hip-hop, and even in our culture now to this day. What drew me to that record is the production from Jay Dilla, and I know they switch gears from Prince Paul, and to me, Prince Paul is as important to De La Soul as Bomb Squad is to Public Enemy, mm-hmm. to Dr. Dre is for N.W.A. and mm-hmm. West Coast Hip Hop. I think Prince Paul is for De La Soul, so for them to completely move themselves away from that, get this production from Jay Dilla, sounds so cinematic, and just the message on this song. They basically put a mirror to what hip-hop was at the time and what it kind of still is today to a certain degree. And so this is 96 we're talking about, this song. And we're still talking about the same things in the culture years later. And not only were they challenging hip-hop on this entire record, I felt like they were also challenging themselves for the departure from Prince Paul and working with different artists from Jeanne to Common to a most deaf who got worldwide notoriety after this verse from on this record. So I always look at this album as one of my favorites from De La Soul. It was the record that made me a fan, the full record that made me a fan. And it's probably one of my favorite Jay Dilla beats of all time. Mm. Like it is... So it's cinematic. It's like a movie score listening to that song. It really it is, is insane. Yeah, you all can find all of De La Soul's music on any streaming platform. I want to give many props and thanks to my man, my mellow, my homie, Marquise Munson from our sister station, 91.1 WNXP. You can find the link to his story on De La Soul in today's episode post at thisisnashville.org. Marquise, such a pleasure. Thanks, my man. I appreciate it, man. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll learn more about how hip-hop grew here in Music City. Join the conversation and send us a tweet at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back.
I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. Hip-hop culture and music is not a monolith. Yes, there are big, heavy beats and MCs and rappers start sharing rhyming lyrics, but the vibe and sound of the music and expression of the culture varies depending on where you are. Hip-hop culture has four essential elements, MCing or rapping, DJing, graffiti, and b-boyism, commonly known as breakdancing. How did that attitude of expression find footing here in Nashville? Who are the people who helped bring hip hop to our city? My next guests are folks who were part of the culture then and now. I'd like to introduce Brian Deese, also known as Rex2. He is a graffiti artist and hip hop publisher who founded Concrete Magazine. He is joined by a name many of you know, C-Wiz, who spins the jams on 92QWQQKFM. He's been doing it for the past 17 years, and he's a part of Society DJs. Brian, C-Wiz, thanks for being here. Welcome to This Is Nashville. Thank you. Hey, what's happening? Oh, man. Doing all right, man. Thank you both for being here. So, okay, I want you all to take us back to the beginning. Seawiz, tell me, what was the first hip-hop song you remember hearing? Uh, ah, you would ask the hard questions immediately. Uh, That's what we do. <laughs> the first hip-hop will probably be Rockbox by Run DMC. If I had to think, I mean, that, that, I mean, you know, we all claim Sugar Hill Gang, but for me, you know, like really hearing it, it was probably Rockbox by Run DMC. Yo, right. All right. How did, how did you feel when you heard that? Yeah, I was mesmerized. It, 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 it excited me. It was something new that I had never heard before. Like, you know, so it was just, it was very ooh wee wee, as I like to say now. <laughs> I like that. Ooh wee wee. Brian, how about you? What's the first song you remember? Uh, I'm not I'm not sure if it was Run DMC, Houdini, or Fat Boys, but it was uh, a lot of breakdancing uh, kind of is, is more what pulled me in was seeing some of the visuals, and then that immediately also connected me to the music. All right, so talk to me about your introduction to the music and culture. Like, when was that moment that you got hooked to it? For me, it was it was in the early 1980s as far as hip hop culture, and it was definitely break dancing. Um, I was a young student, but the media, the the movies of the time were kind of, you know, really having a lot of break dancing in it. And, and these were the mainstream movies, Flashdance, for example, had mm -hmm. the Rocksteady crew mm -hmm. really doing some real moves. That as a as a young person, you're like, wow, what are they doing on that cardboard box? you know, in the alley spinning on their back. It was just so new and exciting. And then there was like a really fresh, fun, energetic beat to drive that dance. And so if you were a young person, you were you were trying to do the wave, you were trying to do the moonwalk and some footwork and some up rock and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. I, I, I know I was out there in the, some of the movies that really moved me, Beach Street, Yep. Breaking, Breaking yep. 2, yeah. Wild yeah. Style, you know, those are the ones. So, see, was paint a picture of us for us. In the early days of hip-hop here in Nashville, like, what was going on in the city during the 80s? Well, I mean, you know, we were, I, I, I would like to say that we were just like everybody else, just trying to figure it out. I mean, you know, every rap record that came out, every song that came out, you know, we just wanted to get a piece of it. 
and we just kind of built. And I think that the movies and things like that, and then, you know, summer vacation, somebody would come from New York or, you know, or up north or somewhere like that. And we just try to emulate those things that we did. So, I mean, we were just like a sponge, like everybody else in the world. Mm-hmm. Who didn't have it, like, you know, who, did, who didn't have the pulse or the essence uh, like it was. By the way, what's up, Brian? How you doing, bro? What up, C-Wiz, my man? It's like a reunion for y'all, huh? Yeah, yeah, I love yeah, this guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is the best. We got big history. It's perfect, perfect. Uh, well, we'll see, who were some of the early crews, like during the 80s, who were out there starting to make their impact, starting to perform songs and put together routines? Well, okay, let's let's take the Blow Pop crew. Let's take, um, let's talk about uh, MC Desire. Of course, we got Cool Daddy Fresh. That's that, We're starting to move into the 90s a little bit right there in Pistol. Uh, we got um, Rude Awakening, and then we got Haystack. Uh, people would kill uh, DJ White Knight and the MC Sir Chance um, and the Blow Pop crew. Yeah, those are, those were some of the groups. I love the names from back in the day. Right. Those are like classic. Nobody comes at There's a whole bunch of littles and all this stuff now. But yeah. back then you had to be original. <laughs> well, see, was, tell me like how you got into DJing. Well, you know, you know, and this is something that Brian may not know, but, you know, I used to be a rapper back in the day. Okay. And, um, you know, uh, you know, when we were trying to figure it every out, I went to a guy's house named Brandon Majors. who uh, We were supposed to have rack practice over there, and I went over there, and uh, he was kind of cleaning up and messing around. I saw two turntables and a mixer, and I asked him if I could get on and mess around with it. So I messed around with it for a while, and then nobody was showing up, so I said uh you know hey man i'm getting ready to leave but how'd that sound he said you were terrible you were really <laughs> really bad but you know if you get some equipment i'll, I'll teach you so what i did was it was christmas and my parents had got me a, a, quite a few gifts and i ended up uh taking my stuff back and buying dj equipment and uh you know for, for those nashville folks there was a in rivergate there was a uh, radio shack right inside the mall, and I got my uh, realistic mixer from there, nice. and I got my two turntables from Circuit City. Okay. So, I love it. That is what's going on. Yeah. Mad, mad props to Radio Shack. Radio Shack has started a whole bunch of careers. It's too bad it yeah. had to shut down all those years ago. So, you know, Brian, you were drawn to those visual expressions of yeah. hip-hop. It's Absolutely. known as graffiti. You know, graffiti gets a bad rap. Yeah, yeah. It shouldn't, right? It shouldn't because, you know, when you're painting a surface, you're never damaging that surface. You're actually protecting that surface from the element with another <laughs> layer of paint. But um, I never try and defend graffiti in the aspect of vandalism. But I always say it's not a, it's a creative energy. It's not a destructive energy so much that it gets painted with you know, broken windows theories and stuff like that back in the day. Um, yeah, it's just young people drawn to big, colorful murals and a little bit of adventure. Mm-hmm. And that's what most people are, young people are drawn to anyways. So. Y- you know, I'm still drawn to it, actually. As I was dri- When I moved to town, I'm driving around looking for places to live. And I was in East Nashville and I saw some trains and I saw some graffiti on some walls. And I said, I, I-, I can move here. I felt very, I felt at home, let's say. So if you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Ekelona. I'm in my bag this hour because we're talking all things hip-hop, y'all. Join the conversation by tweeting us at This Is Nashville. Now I'd like to bring in my next guest. Eric Holt is a promoter who co-founded Love Noise and is currently an artist manager. Full disclosure, he's also on the board of directors for Nashville Public Radio. Eric, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. 
Really a pleasure to have you with us. So tell me, I got to know, what was your introduction to hip hop? My introduction to hip hop came in, I think it was around 1988. I had a cousin uh, from Colorado, and he brought down a mixtape. Mm-hmm. And on that mixtape were a lot of the classics, Biz Marquee, Rakim, and that was my introduction, Big Daddy Kane. And that's the kind of hip hop I still like today. Okay. <laughs> okay, you still have those tapes today? You know, I, I do. They're they're in a trunk in my mom's attic. <laughs> okay. That's tough, man, because cassette tapes come and go real quick. That's true. You know, I, I get this question, you know, while you know, a lot of hip hop came out of North uh, New York or Los Angeles, and then as the years, as we moved into the 90s and the 2000s, itself, hip-hop began to change, and more and more regions were kind of popping up and getting recognized, most notably the South, when Outkast came out and released their album in 1994. Eric, talk to me, how did how did that album really resonate through Nashville when Outkast dropped? I think it resonated through Nashville because Nashville has always had several different pockets of artists and DJs too. And for the most part, a lot of those uh, uh, groups that C. Wiz mentioned, you know, were more like a classic um, Southern rap groups. Uh, if you listen to like where they were in the grand scheme of rap music, they fit right in the middle. Um, when Outkast came into play, you know, they brought a different element, even even to Atlanta. It's very different um, and, and not necessarily representative of everything else that was going on. So when Outkast came out, it kind of influenced a lot of those what they call conscious rappers, uh, mm-hmm. both in Nashville and other parts of, of Tennessee. So you had uh, artists like B. Hill and, and uh, some others that in Nashville kind of took their um, guidance from the outcast or common type um, uh, rappers. Mm-hmm. So, so when Outkast came out, the South was like, "Hey, we are here. We are we're making hip hop. We're making an impact." Did, did that resonate with you like that, Brian? Yeah, for for me especially, I I think everyone when they heard Outkast agreed this is something special. This is something very new and you know different. Nashville, I think at that time. And even throughout the 90s had more of a gangster lean and more of a West Coast kind of influence. And I think a lot of that had to do with the record deals that were being signed by a record label here called Street Flavor Records. And they had an artist named Pistol and Boogie that they both put on to major record deals. They signed them but did all the production in-house in Nashville. But they were taking a lot of their cues from the West Coast and what... Easy e and NWA and Ruthless Records were doing as opposed to what was coming out of the, the East Coast. Mm-hmm. Um, and those, like you had mentioned, those were the two main driving cities and, and points that were really doing it as opposed to like Atlanta kind of at some point kind of took over that. And Outkast was the start of that tide turning to the South where they were very, everything that they were doing was kind of self-influenced you know that dungeon family in atlanta they were really on themselves more than like what is going on in new york what is going on in los angeles you know they were like 
no, we, we know what's going on. Yeah. Like we've got it down here in Atlanta and we've got a long tradition of music and we just need to tap into that. And Outkast was really the Outkast, Goody Mob, all the Dungeon family. They were some of the first people really taking it like Southern, Southern. Houston also, you know, you got to give it up to the ghetto Houston. boys. Yeah yeah, 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 that whole camp down there. Mm-hmm. But uh, Outkast really sig- signified a more music, you know, a very musical kind of shift in attitude. And I think that went to... Again, Sleepy Brown and those those mm-hmm. guys in the Dungeon family directing things behind the scene. Well, let's take a listen to Pistol. He had a hit in 1994 on his album, Hitting Like a Bullet. He was signed, as you said, to Easy E's Ruthless Records. Let's listen to that. Just another day in my six phone. Ring another window. My boys in the back smoke that endo. Get cranked off at herb. When I'm looking for a puppet in the hood that I can serve. Got to get my lean on. Just got the fiends on. Looking for a chick in the hood that I That is 1994, like a mug right yeah, there. That is. Yeah, I, that I hear is. two samples. I hear uh, Cruisin' from Smokey Robinson and the drums, Barry White, they sampled for that. So, you know, Eric, what did you think when you heard that song for the first time? You know, I haven't heard that song in a very, very long time. I was a freshman in college when it came out. Um, you know, it, it reminds me, just uh, as Brian stated, how musical, you know, uh, those tracks were back then and where we got the cues uh, sounded like a West Coast album, mm-hmm. you know, and is right here in Nashville, right? Yeah. And um, it's interesting to see how the sound, the Nashville sound has evolved, has evolved. Yeah. I, I definitely want to talk about the Nashville sound in a second, but another artist who came up a little bit later, we're fast forwarding maybe uh, 13 years from there, Young Buck. Came mm-hmm. out of Nashville. Let's listen to a song that he had, 2007, from the album Buck the World. Here is Get Buck. First come, first serve. Forget what you heard. I'm piecing out my back till I get what I deserve. Blow the smoke out my nose. Pippin' on me. They know me at the bank. Love me at the jury shows. I played high toes. The butterfly toes. On them old school toes. With the chrome on the toes. You can tell the sound, the style of hip-hop changed, but it still had that thump and that low end. Seawiz, you know, tell us briefly yeah. about the impact that Young Buck had on Nashville's hip-hop culture. Oh, my God. Uh, he, he, had, he had a very, very big impact. I would probably say 
for just the Nashville home team, if and, and, and uh, Eric and Brian, correct me if I'm wrong, I probably say Buck is probably the biggest, uh, most well known with the whole G unit uh, train that uh, came out of Nashville, and we were very, very uh, proud to be from Tennessee. And his first album, his best selling album, is called "Welcome to Cashville." So, you know, I, I think that. Uh, I mean, am I right, guys, or am I wrong? Or no, no, no totally. Yeah. In 2004, Straight Out of Cashville came out, and uh, Young Buck was already, you know, f- major success off the G Unit compilation. You know, the group record. Mm-hmm. So everyone had already known Young Buck uh, nationwide. So they were waiting on that record, and then he dropped it, and he didn't. He referenced the city. Yeah. And it didn't say Nashville, it said Cashville, which was very representative of where he was from, you know, where he's from and, and what we were about then. And uh, yeah, like C. Wiz said, we were all very proud to be from Nashville mm-hmm. in, you know, September of 04 when that record dropped. All right, let's keep the conversation going. But first, we got to take a short break. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation on hip hop and talk about what the future looks like for the music and culture here in Nashville. What is your favorite hip-hop artist or your group? Tell us, tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. We've been talking about the hip-hop scene here in our city. Before the break, we were discussing some of the origins of hip-hop music and the culture in Music City, and also some of the artists and influential people that helped expose folks to this new, now, global phenomenon. Now we're going to take a look at the present and future of hip-hop. My guests are promoter Eric Holt, graffiti artist and publisher Brian Deese, and legendary DJ Seawiz. Again, thanks to you all for being here. This is a blast. Thank you. So before I move forward, I do want to let, I know what some listeners are saying, why aren't we having any new artists on? Look, I want this conversation to be about the culture and where it's coming from, from the perspective of people who have seen it form. Like, look, today we're going to get to all the great young artists and contemporary artists who are out. That's another episode. But today is all about the old heads. So, you know, as as we get yeah, into so, wait a minute. You know what that's, what, that's what they call us. I don't feel it personally. I know none of us look it, but, you know, that's what they're calling us. But, you know, I'm thinking about this because hip hop now and as we've all seen it, it's become this global cultural economic force. You know, to some that's a blessing, to others they see it as a detriment. But I want to hear what you all think. You know, Eric, how has the commercialization and the success of hip-hop music, how has that affected the culture of hip-hop? I think um, with the success of the music side of the elements of of hip-hop, it's kind of uh, overshadowed some of the other elements. Um, Even though you see graffiti more and even like that part of it um, is more monetized than ever before, um, the music part, you see it in Forbes, you know, it's a list, you know, the billionaires that were, you know, that are, you know, rappers. And I think it's overshadowed the other elements because a lot of people, I think a lot of young people wouldn't even recognize hip hop as a culture. It's just a genre of music. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that's been taken away because of the uh, influence of cash mm-hmm. you know, being part of the conversation. And so when we have that young people nowadays, they lose that attachment to the culture 
I mean, see, was what are your thoughts about that? Uh, I, I kind of agree with uh, Eric. Uh, you know, uh, I don't know, man. Uh, I, I got to kind of stay mute on that one, man. You know, I think that the uh, the culture has been influenced. So I'm rolling with Eric on that. One. What do you think, Brian? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, money is always going to come in when there's popularity behind something. Mm-hmm. So early on. Um, also, there's a blueprint. There's there's the music industry existing before hip hop music came around. And so that was some of the first things that, you know, w- were exploited that were, you know, cr- you know, put some money behind and some money pulled out of mm-hmm. was the music. But also you saw very early on breakdancing, you know, it's a- immediately put into movies to the point that it oversaturated youth culture to where there was a severe backlash to breakdancing. That after those movies came out and like break in two and they portray it so cheesy and just Mm -hmm. terrible, no young person's gonna wanna stay in that subculture. So hip hop did get a little more guarded by seeing that, I think, Um, but there was always a, a music industry model to plug rap music into, I think. Um, quickly a lot of people in in the rap side of it you know kind of like eric said the the money was there in the rap side you know it's hard to to monetize graffiti and vandalism so some of that kind of peeled away from the four elements because there was so much money in the one element mm-hmm. but i think rap music and rappers did do a good job of trying to keep the dj as part of that whole thing and even the dancers a lot of times you you hear like a rapper, they'll say, how'd you get started? Well, actually, I was a dancer for, you know, Tupac was a dancer for Digital Underground, you know, and will I, you know, there's a bunch of examples like that. Um, So I think people who are really into it still gravitated to the four elements, but I think they kind of were separated somewhat in how they were portrayed in a a more general way terms to the culture and to mass media yeah through, through mass media for anybody who's got questions or curious about it the culture don't forget it's hip-hop turns 50 this year so there are plenty of documentaries about the culture of hip-hop anybody wants to learn okay so i only have like a minute and a half left to ask this question i'm gonna ask it to you eric what is nashville's distinctive sound in hip-hop do they have one or will they get one I think it will evolve into a sound at some point. Right now, I think there's a constant element. And that element, you heard it in Pistol, you heard it um, with Young Buck, is that people, uh, rap artists from Nashville can rap. Mm -hmm. Like, they are skillful writers and MCs. And that's something that's been here from the very beginning, and it's still here today. Wiz, what do you think about Nashville having its own sound? Well, once again, I have to agree with my boy, Eric. Lyrically, we are here and we have something that will evolve. There's just just so many new artists and there's just so many different sounds and so many different attacks that it's hard to to, to signature the sound. It's more about the the artist and the delivery. And so I, I'm kind of leaning on the lyric side. Brian, real quick, we got 30 seconds left. Any, uh, any, any contemporary Nashville artists that you're listening to for their sound? Uh... I mean, I love the people Eric works with, you know, Tim Jam, Brian Brown. Um, they're doing really great stuff and really, like, they craft great songs. Yeah, and, and let's not forget Mike Floss, Daisha McBride, yep. our very own Namir Blade, who did the theme song for This Is Nashville. It's safe to say that Nashville, we already know Music City is more than just country music. We, I think Nashville is going to let everybody know that uh, hip-hop 
is coming strong. I want to thank all of you. Really appreciate this. This is like my own personal pet project show, and it's great. I want to thank my guests, graffiti artist and publisher Brian Deese, legendary DJ C. Wiz, and promoter Eric Holt, who is also on our board of directors. Again, thanks to you all for being here. Again, it's Friday. That means it's time for me to hop out of the studio and ride shotgun with a fellow Middle Tennessean. Now, hip-hop, music, it's all about the rhythm. That's why producers are the soul of our favorite hip-hop or rap songs. Today, I'm riding with Derek Farrier, a.k.a. DTL Jams. He's a hip-hop producer, MC, DJ, drummer, and writer. In essence, he's a one-man hip-hop crew. Buckle up and take a ride with two hip-hop heads. All right, so in the realm of hip-hop, what came first? MCing, writing rhymes, Mm -hmm. DJing, or production? MCing came first. My father back in Flint, Michigan, had a studio in his basement. And uh, he had me rapping at three. I mean, I, we, we cut a song. <laughs> I was three years old called uh, MC Lil D. So I've technically been rapping in studio since 1990. Since <laughs> 1990. So you're a part of the golden era. <laughs> a part of the golden era. He has it on a floppy disk somewhere, and he can't even find it. it That's old school floppy yeah, disk. Yeah, straight up on the floppy disk. But as far as, like, the producing side, going to his house and seeing that gear, like, he didn't really necessarily... You know, sit me down and be like, "Hey, this is what this is what this does." I'd, I'd wait till he go to work, and I'd try to go down there and play with it myself. Mm. And um, I mean, this is like, damn, it's like a Roland RW30. I think was the workstation uh-huh. I, he had, uh-huh. and you could only sample like up ten to, seconds, yeah, right? like, like like seven seconds stereo, fourteen yeah. seconds mono. Yeah. So that's like how I learned, you know. My first sampling it was uh, Footsteps in the Dark, Isley Brothers, because Ice Cube did it. So I wanted to, like, see how he did that. So you basically remade Today Was a Good Day. Basically, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just waking up in the morning, gotta thank God. I don't know, but today seems kind of odd. No barking from the dog, no small. And mama cooked the breakfast with no hug. I got my Describe for us the DTL Jam sound. Oh, man. DTL jam sound. Psycho rap. Psycho rap. Psycho rap, yeah. Okay. It was just like psychedelic rap. Very far out sounds and oddball samples. I mean, if you had to throw a comparison, I'm like a blender of a, of a you know, a Mad Lib Dilla alchemist. You know, throw some, some Timbaland in there, some Neptunes. Those are my, the, like my main producer influences and so like sometimes it's kind of it's hard to not sound like that Uh, i try to stay as far away from the mainstream sound as possible Mm -hmm. which kind of it alienates me from a lot of artists because a lot of artists like to chase uh what's current and what's now thinking that that's you know the best thing and hey more power to them I woke up, guess I'm glad to be alive Suspended license, so don't ask me to drive Showing up late to work because I need a ride Don't you ever say I don't get down because I need a ride Like bread in the oven I'm hot like the gun that puts lead in the stomach You listed off your favorite producers You said Madlib, Jay Dilla, Alchemist, Timbaland, The Neptunes What is it about Madlib that you love? Alright, Madlib will make a beat on anything from anything won't give you a tempo and just say here here's the beat and it's one of the reasons why uh, I guess him and Dr. Dre had butted heads because you know Dr. Dre's perfectionist and he has to have everything you know done the right way whereas Madlib is like 
Does it sound good? Is it, is it making you move? Is it making you want to rap? All right, mm. then it's done. Mm-hmm. And that's been my philosophy before I even knew that that's what he was doing. You know, I've got friends who are more on the technical side, and they're like, D, like, like, these BPMs are all over the place. I'm like, yeah, I know, but they sound good, right? What about Jay Dilla? Jay Dilla, okay. It's the video for Climax and Raise It Up. I remember watching that and being like, yo, this is, this ain't normal. You know what I'm saying? This, mm-hmm. this is not normal. This is, this sounds like a different time of hip hop. Like, yeah. I, I, I couldn't tell if it was futuristic or retro, it was, it, but it was like a great combination of retro futurism. And to this day, that song still sounds like it's from the future. Climax, what he did. So he sampled the I'll Be Sure song, Night and Day. I have listened to Night and Day at a sped tempo. <laughs> I've slowed the entire track down to try to pick out where exactly he sampled and right. how he flipped it, and I still can't figure it out. Like, I don't think anyone knows how he flipped that. So when it comes to sampling, how do you approach that? Because there's some people who say, well, that's stealing. Some people think that it's not very creative, that it's cheating in many ways. And then there's other folks, I'm not of that belief because I'm a sample hip hop artist myself. How do you view sampling? I love sampling. I love the um, feeling of me listening to a song and later finding out, hold on, wait a minute, that's a sample? Like, what's the original? Like, as a fan of music, it's my job to find the original. I'm going to listen to the original. I'm going to listen to the artist's album, the album it came from. I'm going to go back to their first album. Mm -hmm. That's just how how I operate. Mm -hmm. So it's like, wait, if... Mad Lib sampled this song from this artist. I want to know what that album sounds like. I want, I want yeah. to hear the stuff that he skipped over. You know what I'm saying? I want to hear the things he didn't sample. I love sampling, man. You take what you can get and you make something fresh out of it. That's beautiful. I've lived in the dream world where everyone knows my name and everyone goes insane when I spit blows the chain. The inner beast that lives in me lyrically off the chain. Physically hard to aim. Your weapons cause I've changed. Skills that take them from you. Hills I make you run through. The fire pit you liars get detected like a gumshoe. Like I'm Carmen San Diego. I'm harder than very fuego. I'm smarter than I can say. So like Dora and at Diego, I don't need a new day. I need a Riding Shotgun Waco. is supported by San insurance. We want to thank everyone who tuned in this hour. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, and Magnolia McKay. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos-Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tutto. The masterminds behind our theme music are LaRange and Namir Blade. Special thanks to the entire WPLN News room for their work this week covering the breaking news of the deadly covenant school shooting and its aftermath and thank you to the community for making your voices heard on our show and elsewhere we love y'all 
This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Ekelona. We'll see you Monday, everybody, and be good to each other.